Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. You know, for those of you who listen to this show uh, regularly, you're already aware of something that I realized again last night as I was doing some research to get set for today. We somehow, when we when we have these special uh, topics, special theme shows uh, that we put uh, uh, together uh, well in advance of the day, uh, we have had over the last year kind of this uncanny sense of fortuitous uh, timing. Um, we're going to talk today about the personal story of our guest, William Cope Moyers, uh, author uh, of a book called Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption. But that's just a small part of the story we're going to tell today. Um, he has dealt with addiction his entire adult life. And yesterday, the CDC reports that a record number of Americans in the past 12 months have died of drug overdoses, 100,000 people. Um, here in Georgia, more than 1,800 people have died of an overdose uh, in the last reporting period, which in their case was um, about, was <clears throat> excuse me, 2020. Uh, CDC and public health officials say that the reason for this has to do with the pandemic, of course, uh, access to mental health and treatment centers not as readily available. Also, the proliferation of fentanyl um, and other manufactured drugs that are taking their toll because they're particularly uh, dangerous. So that's all the background for uh, the show that we're going to do today with, as I said, William Cope Moyers, who I'm very, very glad is here with us. Just to start off, to give you the titles, um, he is the Vice President of Public Affairs and Community, Community Relations for Hazelden Betty Ford Clinic in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we'll hear a lot more about that in a little while. And one of the reasons we're talking to him today is that Hazelden Betty Ford has created a, a partnership with Emory Healthcare to uh, form the Addiction Alliance of Georgia. They're going to be focusing, and already have started, focusing on the state of Georgia and the problems of addiction that we face here. Beyond all that, William Cope Moyer's personal story is riveting. It's, um, it's disturbing. It is ultimately tr a triumph. And so, William Cope Moyers, I'm very happy that you're with us today. Thank you for being here. Well, Bill, thanks for including me um, and my message of hope. You're right. My my story is riveting. It's disturbing, um, but it's not unique. Um, there are thousands of people across the state of Georgia and millions of people across the United States who share a story, uh, much like mine, a story of addiction, treatment, and, and hopefully redemption. But as we, you just said, a lot of people who struggle with this chronic illness, uh, don't get another chance, and a lot of people die from this chronic illness of addiction. So um, before we get into your personal story, uh, what was your response? What was the reaction, your personal reaction? Well, how did Hazel and Betty Ford react to this news yesterday? Well, I, it's a good question. I, I wish I could say we were shocked, um, but we're not. <laughs> Uh, the record number of people who died of accidental overdose uh, is a new record, but it broke the old record by one year, and it broke 
and that broke the record by one year before that. Um, accidental overdoses uh, are, are, we believe, the number one uh, public health crisis in, in this country. Uh, and uh, we see it every day at Hazel and Betty Ford. I know that Emory Healthcare sees it in the people that they treat. Um, there are simply too many people who are struggling uh, with uh, legal and illegal substances. And as we know, uh, too often uh, people die uh, when they can't get help. And in the midst of this pandemic, uh, people have been isolated. People have been under stress. They um, have been traumatized by um, COVID and by all the dynamics that have resulted in really a seismic shift in how we as a society function. And unfortunately, uh, when that happens, people oftentimes try to compensate or numb themselves with substances. And as a result of that, we see at Hazel and Betty Ford, people who are sick and ironically, people who are sicker than they typically are when they come to us for help because they have been isolated, because they have used the pandemic as a reason not to go get help. Or frankly, uh, we've also seen, Bill, people who um, have been in recovery who have suddenly had a recurrence of their use because they haven't been able to get to their recovery meetings. They're not running the routine that is so uh, important to supporting their recoveries. And so the stressors, the strains, the, the unique dynamics of this pandemic, including isolation, um, has uh, all of these things have fostered this really critical crisis that we have in Georgia and across the country. So let's talk about your story, because it is so instructive in terms of what many, many people, and some of whom you just sort of mentioned, are going through to this very day. Um, first of all, uh, your father is Bill Moyers, one of the most important journalists of his generation, also a presidential advisor, worked for Kennedy, he worked for uh, Lyndon Johnson, um, and uh, went on to a, a, a remarkable career uh, in public broadcasting, among other places. I mean, your father must have won more than two dozen Emmys, I think. If I had to count, it would probably be more than that, right? Right. He's uh, quite a man. Uh, and just to uh, make sure that we don't forget uh, his uh, significant other, my mother, uh, Judith, uh, she's quite Judith. a woman. And, you know, yeah. and, and, and I, I'm, my story is, is really a prime example of the fact that addiction does not discriminate. Uh, I don't come from a broken home. I don't live under a bridge. Uh, I didn't drop out of high school. Uh, you know, I'm not a person without faith. I lacked for nothing growing up. And that fundamentally includes two parents who loved me and continue to love me unconditionally. My parents are still living, though they're retired now. They've been married for 67 years. The point being, Bill, that I grew up lacking for nothing. I had everything, including, you know, and fundamentally a, a foundation of support on the home front with two parents who wanted nothing but the best for me. Yes. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But you also had two other things uh, that you talk about. You had something in your brain, you had a, pre a, a, a predilection, you had a genetic uh, a predisposition uh, for a, an addict, addiction, For you had an addictive personality. And I want to talk about that, but in some ways, the thing that strikes me is, as being even more moving, um, you talk about a, a hole in your soul. In, and, and I want to, let's talk about uh, those things as we talk about how those led you down this path that was so difficult for you 
to come out of. Um, talk about the genetic predisposition for an, to be an addictive personality. Sure. I think it's a, an important distinction between um, those of us who can't use substances or regulate our use of substances responsibly and the rest of the world, if you will. You know, Bill, um, hindsight is always what it is. Uh, I didn't know at the time that I had a genetic predisposition or a vulnerability to substances. Later on, I would learn that my family had struggled with substance use issues along the family tree. Um, I didn't know that growing up as a teenager on Long Island, um, but I do have a brain that's genetically vulnerable to substances. I developed a baffling inability to just say no. Um, even though I had lots of consequences from my use of substances, I couldn't regulate or stop my use um, because of this vulnerability that makes me different than about 80 to 85% of the population, roughly one in 10, sometimes two in 10 of us across the state of Georgia, across the country have this genetic predisposition. And I want to emphasize that's not an excuse for the things that happened to me when I was under the influence. Nobody made me do it. I voluntarily experimented with substances when I was a teenager, for me specifically started using marijuana. And um, that turned on a light switch in my brain, which, as I've talked about before, I could not turn off of my own free will. It doesn't excuse what I did, but it helps to explain why. Good people like me can do bad things. Moral people like me can act immorally. Responsible people like me can be irresponsible. So, yes, I've got that genetic predisposition. Um, and as you pointed out, it is um, such that People like me, when we start using, oftentimes quickly develop a problem. And one of the things that um, you say, in, and, and we should point out, in your role, uh, your professional role, you are giving talks across the country, probably thousands of them since you joined uh, Hazel and Betty Ford, what, 25 years ago. Um, so I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to listen to a couple of things you've you've talked, uh, some of your talks. And, and one of the things you say when you talk about this issue of, of, of a, a problem, a genetic problem in the brain is you say, people like me are considered bad, immoral, that there's something wrong with who we are. And you point out what you have is an illness. And, and that if we don't find a way to, to, to look at people, although we're doing more of this today than we did when you were dealing with this 25 years or so ago, mm -hmm. um, there's still this notion that we don't understand illness as opposed to somehow bad character. Yes, indeed, Bill. There is still a terrible shame around addiction to alcohol and other drugs. Today, we call it a substance use disorder. Um, but uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, substance use disorder, it's all the same. And there is this stigma that somehow people should pull themselves up by the, their bootstraps and get their acts together. There is this uh, stigma around who gets this illness. There is um, not just a public intolerance and, and, and a lot of public um, stigma around this, but there's also with this illness a component of personal shame that that fosters even more stigma and tends to cause people like me to go in the exact opposite direction of where the help is being offered. 
Um, so, yes, you know, and we read about the problems of substance use in Georgia every day on the front page of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, on Georgia public television or Georgia public radio. It manifests itself in homelessness and in social services being stretched. You just have to go to the emergency room at Grady, and you can see lots of people who are there as a result of a substance use issue. Um, too often people see the problem, but they don't see the solution. Well, why is that? Because when people like me get treatment, get access to treatment, in my case, four times over five years, I needed treatment, we get better. And when we get better, we tend to stop acting irresponsibly. We stop you know, doing all those things that cause the public to be intolerant of this chronic disease. So part of my role over the years has been not just talking about the problem, but also promoting and talking about the solution. Because as we know at Hazel and Betty Ford, and as we know through this Addiction Alliance of Georgia, there is a solution and lots and lots of people do get well. And when we do, we go back to being taxpayers and responsible citizens. We raise our families, we own our homes, we show up for work. We do all those things that we didn't do when we were caught in the grip of addiction. So the stigma, the best way to attack the stigma of addiction is by getting people like me from families like mine to stand up and speak out and say, hey, this is what we look like. I, I want to talk about the second part of you physically that you described, mm-hmm. which is the hole in your soul. But I want to do that through the most riveting and, and for you, I'm sure, and, and the moment when your life completely changed. Um, it was, I think I've got the date right, October 12th, 1994. You were yeah. living in Atlanta. You still had a job at CNN. But as you say in the opening to the first of three books that you've written, uh, you were sitting in a crack house at Boulevard and Ponce de Leon in uh, that neighborhood of Atlanta when there were knocks on the door that caught your attention. Talk to us about what was going on on October 12th, 1994. Yeah, Bill, thanks for asking me that. Uh, It's a date that is um, burned into my soul. It's a date where um, my journey in addiction ended and my journey in recovery began. In fact, I was at that corner of Boulevard and Ponce de Leon just a couple of days ago when I was in Georgia to speak. And I went over to look at it. It's gentrified now. It's a, it's a condo uh, in, a, in, a, in a decent neighborhood, not certainly much better than it was 25 years ago. Bill, I had moved to Atlanta in early 1992 after my second treatment at Hazelden here in Minnesota. Uh, my great mentor and friend, uh, Tom and Edwina Johnson, had encouraged me to come to Atlanta. Uh, Tom, at that time, was the president and CEO of CNN. Um, and uh, he had always taken a keen interest in my uh, professional development and also my personal journey. He knew I was a man in recovery at that part. At that time, I was in early recovery. I went to Atlanta to work for CNN. My two boys were born there, uh, my oldest son, Henry, and my middle son, Thomas. Their sister, Nancy, later joined them when we moved back to Minnesota. But in the early 90s, I was living in Atlanta, rebuilding my life after two treatments at Hazelman's. And I had been abstinent for three years. And I say abstinent, I don't say recovering because I wasn't doing those things that we with the chronic disease of addiction have to do to to tend to the garden of our recoveries. I was not using, but I was not recovering. I looked good on the outside and I was functioning, right? I mean, you know, married to a sober woman, new father twice, good job at CNN, 
owned a home in the Morningside neighborhood of, of, of Atlanta, getting on with my life. But because of this chronic illness, Bill, um, and it is a chronic illness, there is no cure for addiction, at least not yet. There is a solution. Millions of Georgians are living in the solution. I'm one of those across the country living in a solution, but there's no cure. And if we don't take care of ourselves with this chronic disease, it's like diabetes or hypertension or asthma, it comes back. My disease came back and it took me down like that. And I ended up in a crack house at the corner of Boulevard and Ponce. And I, I couldn't imagine living my life with drugs any more than I could imagine living my life without drugs. I had been flattened by this disease. I had given up. I just wanted to die. Many, many people feel the same way I do when we're at our bottom. And um, on that morning of October 12th of 94, in a full-blown relapse from addiction to alcohol and crack cocaine, um, there was a knock at the door. And that knock at the door was two deputy sheriffs from the Fulton County Sheriff's Department who arrived off duty, but in uniform and carrying their sidearms, who were there not to arrest me, because what were they gonna arrest me for? The possession of the narcotics in my bloodstream. They were there to save me. They were there as part of an intervention that had been engineered in part by Tom and Edwina Johnson, my parents who were up in New York, my employer, my church, my doctor, my community. My community really did not like what, what I was doing under the influence, but they continued to love me through it. And they engineered an intervention that resulted in these two deputy sheriffs coming and knocking on the door of the crack house and saying, we want the white guy, just the white guy. There were nine people in that crack house. They were only asking for one person, me. All those other people, <clears throat> I get choked up about it. All those other people in that crack house were just as sick and as just as deserving as I was, but they weren't gonna get what I got because that intervention, that community was only looking for me, the white guy. And, um, and so I was saved. I was delivered from that crack house. I walked past all those other uh, men and women uh, who really did want what I wanted and deserved what I, what, what I needed. Um, um, and I was taken in a van uh, to uh, uh, Ridgeview Institute, which is the treatment center in Smyrna. Um, and I received treatment there and um, it stuck, you know, it stuck. And, and Bill, I wanna tell you, I spoke at church the other night, uh, Frank Boykin, Frank and, and Karen Boykin's church in, in, in Buckhead. And I forgot to tell the group this, this really important element that I think is relevant to what you and I are talking about today, which is that of the nine people in that crack house, only one of us is alive today, me. And the other eight people, um, um, I would later learn uh, through the School of Social Work at Emory, I would later learn that those other eight people in that crack house did not survive um, long enough to get another chance. So I think about them all the okay. time. And, um, and, and, and I, I, part of my work is driven in part is driven by the fact that I want to help others in the way that I was helped. It's a powerful story. And I want to get now to the point about a hole in my soul, as you've mm. described it. Your father was sitting in the front seat of the van that you were brought out to. And mm. you say this, turning around to look at me, he saw a 35-year-old crack addict who hadn't shaved, showered, or eaten in four days, a man who walked out on his wife and two young children 
and ditched his promising career at CNN. You're angry, I said. I didn't know what else to say. And he then says, that's hardly the word for it. And then he says, there's nothing more I can do. I'm finished. But you believe that he said something else. You believe he said, I hate you. But that's difficult enough. But it's what you said next that speaks to this notion of a soul in the whole. Tell us. I said, I hate me too. And I, you know, yeah, that's the power of addiction. When it can cause a father who loves his oldest son unconditionally to feel in that moment that he hates him. And the power of addiction, when it can cause the sick person to think they hate themselves too. I mean, no wonder it's so hard for people who struggle with substances to get help or to get help again. And no wonder it's so hard for family members or the community at large to continue to have patience with, uh, much less love, the addict or the alcoholic when that person is sowing all kinds of trouble, like a tornado through a neighborhood. Um, uh, yeah, man. Yeah, that was a moment. My dad didn't hate me any more than I hated myself, but it was that moment of just frustration, fear, anger. Shame, it's a toxic combination, man, and there's many, many, many of us who can relate to that. It doesn't matter whether you're the white guy or the or the person of color or the high school graduate or the radio journalist. When you are caught in the grip of addiction, we all feel the same. And to that point, Bill, I, I, I think the other dynamic of addiction beyond the genetically vulnerable brain is this thing I call the hole in the soul. And you know what? The hole in the soul is not unique to me or to people like me, addicts and alcoholics. All human beings have a hole in the soul. It's called yearning. It's why we want to go to the moon or run a marathon. It's why we want to do a great show on Georgia Public Radio or why we want to cure um, cancer. Um, it's why we're creative. It's why we um, want to be good parents. I mean, all human beings yearn, but for some of us, like me, we yearn for something that is impossible to attain, and that's perfectionism, or in the case of some people, peace. I mean, nobody's perfect, and yet for years, all I wanted to be was better than I felt I was. And I never could attain that. I, I, I lived with that hole in the soul, and it irritated my gut. It, it taunted my brain. But it was only when I smoked marijuana voluntarily for the first time in the 70s that I found the answer to that hole in the soul, because suddenly I didn't have to try so hard anymore. That substance medicated that hole in the soul. Was my hole in the soul exacerbated by the fact that I come from a family of means and prominence? Absolutely. My father's success as a journalist and in government, my mother's success uh, as a home economist and uh, an executive producer of my father's programming, those things just aggravated it. But I never felt growing up that I was good enough. I always wanted to be better than. And that's impossible. You know, we're all flawed human beings. Um, and so when I smoked marijuana, I didn't have to try so hard anymore. And I was off to the races. So um, I, I want to talk about that in a moment, but, but be, before we do, uh, because I think spirituality plays into that part of it as mm -hmm. well, and, and I really want to talk about your journey in spirituality. But before we get to that, I want to talk about your experience at Ridgeview. I mean, most, I think many, many people 
who listen to the show know that Ridgeview is a premier uh, center for the treatment of addictions. Um, and you say you say something about your experience at Ridgeview. You'd been in and out of recovery. You, you tell a, you have kind of a funny line when you give speeches. You said you liked recovery so much you did it four or five times. But Ridgeview was the final stop. And um, and at Ridgeview, you said I did something for the first time. I didn't do it my way. I went there and listened and did what the doctors and therapists told me to do. With addiction, we selectively pick what we want, but that's not what you did over the 100 days that you stayed at Ridgeview. Yeah, you know, I'd been to Hazelnut for treatment in 89 at the age of 30, and I went to treatment at Hazelnut a second time in 1991. That's a premier, world-renowned treatment facility, and yet when I was there, I would sort of selectively pick what I wanted to do. You know, now think about the insanity of that. If you've got a brain tumor and, you know, you're, you're at Piedmont Hospital and, 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 the, and the oncologist there says that we want you to do A, B, C, and D, well, you're going to do A, B, C, and D if it improves your odds to get better with brain cancer. But there's, there's something about addiction that causes many of us to think that we know, if not best, that we know what we need to do that the experts don't necessarily recommend and or, or we don't want to do what the experts recommend. And yes, when I got to Ridgeview on October the 12th of 1994, flattened by my illness and not able to answer the question, now what am I going to do with my life? I couldn't answer that question. I mean, think about it. I couldn't answer this question. Now what am I going to do with my life? Um, I, I listened. I listened to the... Uh, addiction doc, Dr. Paul Early. I listened to my counselors. I listened to the therapist. I listened to my peers. And I didn't try to tell them how I was going to do it. And I sure as heck didn't tell them how they should do it. I just went there and I listened. And and I did what I was told to do, just like I would do if I had a brain tumor. And, you know, those, it, 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 it worked for me. Now, I want to say this too, though. A hundred days of treatment is very unusual, particularly in the days before insurance covered addiction on par with other chronic illnesses like it does today. But I had money in the bank and I had an employer, CNN, and I had a boss or bosses, including Tom Johnson, who were willing to hold open my job for me and let me stay on the company insurance plan, if you will, while I got my treatment. And, you know, that was a big, big, big decision they made. They could have terminated me. They could have said, you know what, we're going to put you on a, we're going to suspend you or whatever. We're going to hope you do it. Good luck. They held on to my position. So I, um, I, I got what I, I got what I needed and, and it, and it, and it, it worked. And it led you to take the position, to go back to St. Paul, Minnesota, and take the position that you hold 25 years uh, uh, later, helping others. And, and what you've said, and we've got to get to a break, but what you've said, uh, you, you, you say, of course, that you are still in recovery. You don't ever uh, leave being in recovery, even though you right. haven't done anything, um, to, you haven't done any substances since uh, your, your Ridgeview experience. But you say, as we go to a break, the single most important tool to my recovery is helping other people. And let's talk about, your story is compelling, 
But I also want to talk about what you're doing with Hazel and Betty Ford here in Georgia uh, after we come out of the break. And then we'll talk more about your personal story as well. So let's get to a break. Come back with more on Political Rewind. My guest today is William Cope Moyers, whose uh, own struggles over um, many years of his life with addiction have led him to work uh, for the past 25-plus years in recovery uh, at Hazelden Betty Ford in Minnesota. Um, If you want to read more about his harrowing story, and it it is a harrowing story, um, I really do suggest uh, that you uh, pick up his book, uh, Broken, My Story of Addiction and Redemption. Um, So you mentioned Frank Boykin a few minutes ago. Frank Boykin is an executive at Mohawk uh, Industries, and um, he has come together with uh, Hazelden, Betty Ford, with Emory Healthcare um, to uh, uh, it, to found a new nonprofit, I assume, nonprofit organization that is going mm-hmm. to deal and has started dealing with recovery in Georgia. Why did you all decide that Georgia was a place you wanted to focus on, uh, William? Well, two things, Bill. One, um, uh, you know, my story uh, ended and began there. Um, Two, Tom Johnson and a group of uh, civic uh, and community and academic and uh, healthcare uh, leaders all decided they wanted to bring to that community more access to care, more access to treatment through Hazel and Betty Ford. Um, It wasn't just a single person who was responsible for this. It was, as I said, the collective conscious, if you will, of the, of the community that recognized not only the problem, at that time, the opioid epidemic, <laughs> this is three years ago, and we've seen what's happened since, it's only gotten worse, not only the opioid epidemic, they wanted to do something about it, and they wanted Hazel and Betty Ford to come to the community. But we recognize that there are a lot of good experts on the ground doing this kind of work um, in in the community of, of Atlanta and broadly, more broadly in Georgia. And so uh, that, that, that gave birth to um, the, the collaboration between Hazel and Betty Ford and Emory Healthcare. Emory Healthcare, um, led by Dr. Justine Welsh, um, does have a small presence in the addiction space uh, in, 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 in its system of care, but they're, they're, they're experts in a lot of ways on a lot of things in that community. Um, and, and we're not, uh, we, you know, we don't have a presence in Georgia until we got together with this collaboration. So it really was bringing together the best minds from Emory, the best minds from Hazel and Betty Ford, the heart and soul of, of, of the civic community of Georgia, uh, led by, you know, Tom Johnson, Frank Boykin, um, Jack Harden, um, and lots of others. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, Judy Fitzgerald at the state of Georgia has had a huge influence in the direction our, our work takes. But what we want to do and what we will do is open the door, not only to treatment services, more treatment services, but also um, bring the, the educational components, teaching doctors, teaching healthcare professionals, um, teaching um, administrators in schools, how to recognize and come to terms with substance use issues. So it's not just a treatment track. It is a holistic 
or comprehensive um, set of of programming um, and and expertise that we are confident will um, further expand access to care for Georgians who need and deserve uh, what I got 25 years ago. Well, I it 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 makes sense that you're here. I mean, I I like to point out, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't even think about it. Let's face it, Atlanta is the center of the public health universe in many ways. Between uh, Emory, uh, uh, the CDC, obviously, the Task Force for Global Health, so many organizations. And uh, so it's absolutely right uh, that you're here. Now, you've begun work, but you're real. I, I think I'm right in saying that the larger goals, that the more robust parts of what you're going to do here are still, you're looking ahead to 2022 and beyond, right? Yes, Bill, because, you know, um, (laughs) these things do cost money. And, you know, Georgia, specifically Atlanta, has a can-do attitude around so many things. I remember when Tom Johnson called me up and said, we want to do for addiction in Atlanta what we did for the Olympics back in the early 90s, (laughs) right? Um, When this community puts its mind to something, it gets it done. But to get it done also includes raising money uh, because Hazel and Betty Ford is a not-for-profit. Emory Healthcare is what it is. And, you know, we, we, money doesn't grow on trees, even though we're both strong trees, if you will. So, so raising money is, is, a, um, is a precursor, if you will, to getting this thing up and running. And we have struggled candidly with that to some extent. But we've had some real success lately. We, we, we targeted a goal of about $10 million that we needed to raise before we would open our outpatient um, site uh, at Wesley Woods. And I'm happy to say, and there's a lot of excitement in the community, that um, the Rollins uh, Foundation, uh, just like the Robert W. Woodruff Foundation, have stepped up big time in, 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 in making possible through their philanthropy um, are, are getting closer and closer to the goal. So we needed to raise, as I said, about $10 million. We've got a little bit, a little bit over $8 million. And we're confident that by year end or certainly early in 2022, um, we will complete the uh, first round of, of philanthropic um, endeavor to, to get that $10 million and didn't begin to offer those treatment services. And as we know, in the midst of this pandemic and in the midst of this epidemic of overdoses, there's never been a time like right now to get those services up and running. Right. Thank you for uh, uh, telling us about all that. I I, I do want to return to your personal life because I think your story is one that uh, our listeners are want to hear and should hear. Mm. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people don't know that Bill Moyers, not only an advisor to presidents, not only one of the great journalists of his time, uh, but is also a Southern Baptist minister, an ordained <laughs> minister. And so religion has played a role in your life from a very, very early age. Um, God, whoever you think that is, uh, has <laughs> also been a part of your life. If, if we could, I want to talk about this story. As you've struggled to understand certainly in terms of your addiction, but beyond, what do you think about this higher power? Let's go back to this remarkable story about when you were, I think you were around nine years old, when you took a trip with your family to New Mexico, and you were caught in a tremendous lightning storm. 
And it was a, something happened, which you can tell us about, that frightened you and changed all of your thinking about what it meant to believe in God. Tell us about that. Yeah, Bill, thanks for plucking that out of my story, because it is a really important part of my journey. You know, I was born with a fundamental understanding of a power greater than myself. I call it God. Um, My dad is an ordained Southern Baptist minister. In fact, when I was born in 1959 in Fort Worth, Texas, my father was in seminary. And he and my mother uh, pastored a small church in Central Texas. So I grew up not only with all the other trappings of, uh, of, 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 of a healthy family, but I also grew up with a fundamental understanding of, of God. Um, but it, when I was actually 13 years old in 1971, we were on a family vacation, and I witnessed um, the death of a family that were standing under one of 10 million trees in a national forest, and that tree got struck, struck by lightning. And it killed many of the members of that family standing underneath that tree. Um, And in that moment is when my sort of unchecked belief in God was shaken, shaken to the core of my understanding. Now, I, I was 13, but I still understood. I said, wait a minute. If God is all powerful, then how could he have allowed that to happen. And if God is all, if God is not all powerful, then what is he? Because that did happen. And I could not square that with my faith. And I struggled mightily for years. I pretended to believe, and I went through the process. I continued to go to church. I continued to pray. But as I said in the book, my prayers weren't answered, at least not in the way that I expected. So I had that belief, but it died in July of, of 1971 with that incident involving that family um, that was killed by lightning. So uh, I, I want to relate that to what it means to go into recovery. I mean, we know mm-hmm. that in 12-step program, talking about your higher power is such an important part of the process. Um, so as you struggle to understand your relationship to God and whether or not he was a moving force in our lives, how did that impact you and what kind of discoveries did you make about having uh, that to turn to and lean on as you were trying to save yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and again, it, I, I, my, my, my current belief, and no pun intended here, proved to be a baptism of fire. Uh, there I am in the crack house, right? And I, I, I can't, I, I can't answer the question. Now what? I don't know what to do. But I'm delivered from the crack house, and I'm in, in I, I'm on suicide watch for eight days at Ridgeview, and, and, um, and, and, and through, through that process, we don't have enough time today to talk about it. But through that process, I came to this new understanding of my faith. I realized that religion for me is a destination. Of, of the mind, but that spirituality is a journey of the heart for me. And so I was on this journey that wasn't going to end until whenever it ends. I'm on this journey. And for me, Bill, for me, it wasn't enough to believe in God. I had to trust in God that God could do for me what I could not do for myself. And in this instance, it was get well with addiction. <laughs> I'm not saying that everybody has to believe what I believe to get well, but you have to believe, you have to have hope, 
You have to believe that there is a solution, and you have to believe that you can get there if you just keep doing whatever it is that's suggested, or if you just keep striving for not to give up, not to give up. And so I stopped believing and began to trust. And that for me was that turning point where I went around that corner of uncertainty. And listen, my life has not been perfect since I, since that happened to me. You know, whose life is? I've had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows since I wrote Broken. Uh, I, I, I've, I've gone through life. But what I try to do every day is to hold on to this, this trust that the, my God will, will continue to show me the way if I just keep my eyes wide open. Um, that's a powerful way to think about it. Thank you for that. Let's do this. We got one more break. We got to get it out of the way. Let's do it now and come back and talk more uh, with William Cope Moyers. William Cope Moyers is our guest today. Um, we're talking about addiction and recovery and his work at Hazelden Betty Ford. Um, William, uh, let me ask you a question. You, when you, when you recount your experience of being in that crack house with a knock on the door, what you heard the Fulton County Sheriff uh, say is, uh, we want the white guy. We want the, the white guy. You talk about um, how we don't accept addiction in many ways as an illness. We see it as a moral flaw. We see people as bad. How does race play into that? I mean, to be quite frank, if we opened up the dictionary and said, here's, and looked at the definition of white man, your, your picture very well might be there, you know. <laughs> mine mine could be man. too. Yes, I am a white man. I can confirm that. <laughs> So how does how does how does race play into this perception and how does it make it harder for society to want to deal with addiction as an illness that has to be treated you know even when within the reporting on the CDC's numbers we've uh, the Associated Press uh, has quotes from people who are saying law enforcement can't solve this problem it's got to be done by other parts of society yeah, race plays into this issue every day, just like it does in so many uh, of the issues our country is grappling with. Um, I've always said addiction does not discriminate, and neither should recovery, but it does too often. Um, it, you, if you're white, if you've got private health insurance, if you've got a little bit of money in the bank, uh, your odds of, of getting access to care are a lot better than if you're a person of another color, if you don't have insurance, uh, and if you know, you're living on, um, on public assistance. Um, and, and that's why the Addiction Alliance of Georgia is going to be um, so critical uh, to addressing uh, substance use issues, not just in a community, but in the communities that make up the fabric of that city and, and that state. Uh, you know, the state of Georgia made it very clear, and some of the community leaders made it very clear early on that they did not expect and they did not want Hazel and Betty Ford, and later with the collaboration with Emory, they did not want us opening a treatment center that was going to be just for dot, dot, dot. I mean, it needed to have access to care for everybody. And therein lies the opportunity and therein lies the challenge, because um, this country has been waging a war on drugs for over 250 years. And it is a war on drugs that falls disproportionately on people of other colors. 
other colors than white. Um, it's why our jails in Fulton County, it's why the prison system in Georgia, just like the prison system in Minnesota, and just like the prison system anywhere, is filled disproportionately with people of other colors who were there because of a drug or an alcohol experience. We cannot fight our way out of this public health crisis if we take it on as a law enforcement issue. Fortunately, I think law enforcement, like a lot of other parts of the of the of the dynamic, have recognized that, and it's why we are um, decriminalizing some substances. It's why we're changing the sentencing laws. But truth be told, um, I see it too often in my work at Hazel and Betty Ford and through the Addiction Alliance of Georgia efforts. I see it too often where uh, where race, just like economics plays a unfair role in who accesses care and who gets a chance to recover. Yeah, I'm glad you were, we talked about that. I think that's really important. And by the way, I certainly, when I said that about you, look, I am the an example of white privilege personified, because not only am I a white man, I'm also a white man who spent most of his life in the public eye and become, you know, for better or worse, kind of well-known. I know that if I needed to deal with addiction, I am going to be treated differently than a crack addict who lives of a different color. And I just think it's, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Well, Bill, it's also why, like I said earlier in your show, and I really appreciate how you approach this today and the questions that you've asked me, they're very sensitive and insightful in a way that makes me feel like we're moving the conversation further down the road in Georgia. But it's why I don't ever forget about those other people in that crack house. It's why when somebody calls me and asks me for help or sends me a social media message or whatever and says I need help for myself or a family member, even if they don't end up coming to Hazel and Betty Ford, even if they ultimately don't come to the Addiction Alliance of Georgia, I would make sure that I get them where they need to go, whether that's in Indiana or in South Carolina or down the street in St. Paul, Minnesota. I am committed to making sure that people get the same chance that I got, even if it's more than one. So um, let's go back to uh, Boulevard and Ponce de Leon for just a minute uh, with the remaining time we have. You've been back to Atlanta any number of times since that uh, long ago time when uh, you were, uh, I think, rescued is a fair word from that place. Um, On one trip back to that location where you wanted to remember what had been there, you ran into Scarface. Uh, Um, Tell us about Scarface. Yeah, Scarface was a man, um, that's all I knew him, Scarface. He had a, uh, been cut by a knife from his left ear down to the corner of his mouth. He was the low-level street drug dealer. I ran into him, and we palled around, if you will, for those times uh, before I, you know, found redemption. Um, and I never saw him again after October 12th of 1994 until 11 years later, after I moved back to Minnesota, I'd been working for Hazelin at that time called Hazelon. And um, I'd been in recovery for 11 years. And I went back there as I was getting ready to write this memoir, Broken. I went back just to sort of level set, if, if you will. And I was standing there in front of the crack house. I kid you not. And I looked up and there coming down the street was a man that I knew. Uh, he didn't know me. How could he know me? He was still under the influence and still living on the street. He couldn't know me because I looked different than I did the last time he'd seen me. It was Scarface. 
we stopped, started a conversation. There's a whole chapter. Scarface, by the Scarface. way, was the man who sold you crack. The crack. Yes, and used it Go just ahead. like I used it. And and I introduced myself to him, tried to convince him that he knew me. But that day, I also wanted to get to know who he really was, so I asked him what his name was. Because his name is not Scarface. His name is Tony Alexander, and he has a mom and a dad, and he has a name. He's a person. And I tried to convince Tony that I could help get him into uh, treatment, um, although I knew that would be an uphill fight for lots of reasons. Um, and I never heard from him again. Later on, not too many years ago, actually, I learned that uh, Tony Alexander was shot to death on the street um, in Atlanta. I don't know the circumstances, but I know that um, that could have been me. And I know that for whatever reason, lots of reasons, actually, uh, Tony didn't get the same chance that I got, which was another chance. You know, there's only one bottom with this illness, Bill. It's death. Anything short of that is a way out. Uh, Tony didn't get that way out. Uh, and so I honor him. And I'm glad you honored him in this program because he was a man who figures prominently in my life. And he is an example, whether it's by overdose or by violence. This is an illness that takes no prisoners. And if you don't get well, you are likely to get worse. And too often people die with this illness. He is one of them. And I think about him all the time in the work I do for Hazel and Bay Ford and the Addiction Alliance of Georgia. So, William, um, as we come to a close, you, you've said, we, we said that um, you, someone uh, like you is always in recovery. How's your recovery going? Yeah, you know, Bill, you mentioned earlier on, I know we're tight for time here, that, um, you know, I hadn't had a substance since October 12th of 94. Well, actually, truth be told, it's, I haven't written about it, but I'm in the process of writing about it. About eight years ago, I had a run-in with pain medication that was appropriately prescribed for neuralgia in my jaw as a result of a botched surgery. And I developed a, a baffling inability to get off of those opioid pain meds of my own free will. <laughs> it was pretty scary. You know, it didn't cause me to take a drink. It didn't cause me to go back to the crack house, but it scared the stuff out of me. Um, and I needed to get some more help for that. Uh, one of that, one of those ways I got help was through the use of, um, of an anti-craving medication called Suboxone, which is as close to a silver bullet when it comes to opioid dependence as anything that there is. I needed some Suboxone prescribed by an addiction doc up here in Minnesota just to right the ship and make sure I continue to stay on the path of personal recovery and professional responsibility. So up and down imperfectly, but here we are a day at a time. William Cope Myers, uh, Moyers, um, it, you know, your story reminds us that you know, we're living in a time of toxic partisanship. If you're not like me, I don't like you, I hate you. Um, you remind us uh, we're all human. We all share so many fears and hopes and priorities in life, and that includes people who struggle with addictions like the one you did. Thank you so much for being with us on Political Rewind today. We are like way, way out of time, uh, so all I have time to say is we'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk politics. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow. 